0: Good evening. Mask mandates a possibility as New York City moves towards yellow alert as COVID cases rise. War heats up in the Donbass and some Michigan militia types get off on federal charges that they plan to kidnap the governor of Michigan. What does that say about the government's anti-right wing militia? attempts to uh, control that and with these and other stories i'm paul durianzo with the wbai news for monday april 18th 2022 the biden administration requirements that all passengers on public transportation wear masks was overturned by a federal judge in florida today the order covers airplanes airports And other federally regulated transportation methods. Federal District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizzell says the mandate exceeds the CDC statutory authority and violates the procedures required for agency rulemaking. Mizzell, an appointee of President Donald Trump, ruled on a suit brought last year by a group called the Health Freedom Defense Fund. Meanwhile, closer to home, Philadelphia became the first major American city to reinstate mask mandates following a sharp increase in new COVID infections. The mandate requires masks in all indoor public places though businesses have the option of choosing instead to require proof of vaccination from their employees and customers. It was reimposed a little more than a month after the city lifted it in early March. But here in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams says the city is doing good and may not need to return to masking. Because of the amazing job
1: that New Yorkers have done, vaccines and boosters, because of the safeguards we're taking, Because of us doing the right thing, we're not seeing those high level of hospitalizations, our hospital systems being overpowered, the high level of deaths. We just have done the right thing here in the city. And we're unlike any other city in America. This is New York. The uniqueness of our city calls for different ways of managing any type of uh, crisis. If we get to the place of mandate, we would make that call. We're not there yet. And we are encouraging New Yorkers, as we did with PSAs and communications around the holidays, because a lot of our young people are home. People get together for, for holidays, wear the mask if you feel uncomfortable, if you don't know the status of a person's vaccine, if you're at gatherings. So there is an encouragement we're putting out to New Yorkers. We're just
0: not at the place of mandate right now. Reporters referring to leaks that the city will up its COVID alert status to yellow. Adam says he is in touch with the experts.
1: I'm going to factor in all the information. And then after meeting with my health team, we're going to make a determination. COVID is a formidable opponent. And if you become rigid, you're not going to be able to shift and pivot with COVID. COVID does not follow any rules. And so we have to be willing to pivot and shift. And so based on the doctor giving their medical advice, our health team will sit down and say, this is what we're going to do as a city. Because we have to factor in everything. And I think um, Governor Hoku was right when she stated we can't close down our city together. We need a health we need healthy bodies, healthy minds, and healthy economy. They all go together. And so we're going to look at the data, look at the information, look at the advice from the doctors, and then we're going to make the appropriate decision how to move forward. And we will continue to pivot and shift. I'm not going to be ashamed to come to the microphone and say we're moving in another direction. COVID is unashamed about trying to disrupt our lives and we cannot be ashamed to pivot and shift where the needs are
0: and that was the mayor earlier today meanwhile the world health organization has been saying the threat from new variations on COVID are very real and continuing dr mike ryan of the world health organization says the danger is always there
2: the virus continues to evolve we simply cannot afford to lose sight of this virus. Uh, uh, it's really, really important. As the virus goes underground, we need to track it because we don't know what comes back. So it, it's, it will be very, very, very short-sighted at this time to assume that lower numbers of cases means an absolute lower risk. We're very pleased, as the DG said, to see the deaths dropping. But this virus has surprised us before. This virus has caught us off guard before. We need to do our jobs and track this virus as best we can. While people get back to living as normal a life as possible, we in the scientific and public health community need to continue to track this virus closely in every single country.
0: Another WHO official, Dr. Maria Vankarkov, had this to say.
3: We expect the virus to continue to evolve. We will see further variants emerge. But we do expect to see a continued reduction in severity and impact because there are tools that can save people's lives, because we have increasing vaccination coverage, because we have increasing population level immunity from past infection and vaccination. We do expect in the future to see some kind of seasonality because it is a respiratory pathogen. Even though this virus affects all of the organs of the body, we expect to see some temporal patterns in our temperate regions, but we do expect to see outbreaks flaring up where people are not protected.
0: And that's Dr. Maria Vankarkov of the World Health Organization. And across the world, Russian forces launched a new offensive push along most of Ukraine's eastern flank today, and the Battle of Donbas has now begun. That's according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Ukraine's army has been bracing for a new Russian assault on its eastern flank since Moscow withdrew its forces from near Kiev and from Ukraine's north late last month in order to focus on an assault in the Ukrainian region of Donbas. Zelensky said in a video address, we can now say the Russian forces have started the Battle of the Donbass boss for which they have long prepared. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby had this to say.
3: We and the Russians continue to flow in enablers, capabilities that will help them fight in the Donbass going forward. That's artillery, rotary aviation, helicopter support, command and control enablers. And we do believe that they have reinforced the number of battalion tactical groups in the east and the south of Ukraine. Now, we can't say specifically where all these battalions, these tactical groups are going, but we have seen over the last few days, they've added now more than 10 to what they already had there in that part of the country. Separate and distinct from that, we have continued to see the concentration of their airstrikes and artillery in the Donbas and in the south, particularly around and in Mariupol. That's where the preponderance of their strike activity has gone and the fighting of Mariupol, as you guys have all seen, continues. The Ukrainians are still resisting. The city has not fallen to the Russians, but they continue to pound it from the air and through long-range fires. You can continue to see the Russians are doing what we call shaping. They're trying to set the conditions for more aggressive, more overt and larger ground maneuvers in the Donbass. As the Pentagon spokesperson,
0: overnight and today, Russia bombarded the western city of Lvov and a multitude of other targets across Ukraine. In an intensified bid to grind down the country's defenses, at least seven people were reported killed in the missile strikes in Lviv, a city close to the Polish border that's seen only sporadic attacks during almost two months of war, and has become a haven for civilians fleeing the fighting elsewhere. Lviv has also become a major gateway for NATO-supplied weapons. And the uh, spokesperson for the uh, United States State Department had these comments
3: will reestablish a diplomatic presence just as soon as we are able. When it comes to our calculus, you know that we have a high priority on the safety, security, the welfare, the well-being of American diplomats and our colleagues who are serving around the world. So we are continuing to assess the security situation. And when the security situation allows it and not a second later, I can assure you that we will have a reestablished diplomatic presence on the ground in Ukraine. In the meantime, I wouldn't want to offer the misimpression that the lack of a formal diplomatic presence, the lack of a diplomatic team on the ground has in any way encumbered our ability to coordinate, to consult with our Ukrainian partners.
0: And that was the State Department. Uh, The United States has been claiming uh, without much proof that Russia might be preparing to use chemical or nuclear weapons, which most experts consider uh, not a very big option for them. But there is a big possibility of an accidental release of chemicals, poisonous chemicals, and nuclear radiation into the environment if during the war, errant missiles, rockets, or artillery were to strike Ukraine's uh, well-developed nuclear and chemical industries. The spokesperson for the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan spoke directly to the possibility and preparations for a possible mistaken attack or hit on uh, dangerous munitions or dangerous chemicals or nuclear facilities.
2: There's always a risk that in conflict, especially in war, especially where there's poor targeting that civilian infrastructure can become implicated in any conflict. Therefore, infrastructure associated with chemical production, infrastructure associated with radiation, or nuclear energy production can become compromised. So we've seen in situations in the past that that can happen. So there is always a higher risk. That a conflict, ordnance and bombs can cause damage to infrastructure that may result in the release of chemicals, in the release of radiation. And those risks are higher in Ukraine than in many other countries because it has a very well-established chemical industry network and a very well-established nuclear industry. So there are always higher risks. And we've been warning of this and preparing for this in support of IEA in terms of the radiation medicine emergency response plan, but also looking at the possibility of Response to chemical incidents, and we 've been doing training and various other supports to the authorities in Ukraine in preparation for such an event. This is very different than to the intentional use of chemicals as a weapon in war, which is against international law and in itself is a war crime, so that 's a very different issue
0: and uh, that is the spokesperson for the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan. And in national news, last week, in uh, basically a stunning surprise, the Michigan kidnapping case, you might recall that uh, a group of members of various militias associated with Michigan had uh, been arrested and charged with allegedly uh, planning to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the Republican governor of Michigan. But despite what were extraordinary efforts by the government to muzzle the defense, a jury in Grand Rapids Federal Court last Friday acquitted two men of those charges. As a result, Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta are now free men, while the federal judge overseeing the case called the mistrial on the counts against Adam Fox and Barry Croft. In a written statement after the verdict, the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Michigan, Andrew Burge, said that Fox and Croft now await retrial, although he didn't say when that would be. It was a stunning rebuke to the prosecution, according to Ken Bensinger, who wrote uh, an article about the trial for BuzzFeed News. He's been uh, following it for more than a year and spoke with WBAI earlier today.
4: investigation that started in March of 2020. Twenty into a group in Michigan called the Wolverine Watchmen. It turns out that after, several months after that investigation was opened, and they had a informant who infiltrated the group. Members of that group got invited to a big get together in Ohio for militant types around the country. It just so happened that that event was actually sort of an FBI-planned event. The FBI had been instrumental in organizing that whole event through separate informants. When the different FBI agents behind the curtains, of those two things realized they were ending up looking at the same people they joined forces, and that's the origin of the case.
0: They don't allow the people who are tried to try and put it in context, what exactly was going on and why they said what they did, or to make any argument based on the politics of what they were doing that might justify it.
4: Historically, the FBI used this kind of techniques, um, both for investigating and prosecuting, I guess I should say, the Justice Department as well as the FBI, against left-wing groups, right, progressive groups, whether Underground or the Black Panther and then in the 2000s, they were doing it against Muslims. They're accusing of being terrorists. And now we're seeing the the pendulum swing to that the same techniques are being applied to a more militant right group of people. But the underlying playbook is the same. And part of it is creating a dominant narrative that they can tell and using courtroom rules of evidence and other stuff to prevent another version of the truth to get into the courtrooms. R- rules of evidence in courtroom can be very strict, depending on what the prosecution sort of argues for and where the judge falls on that. In this case, in general, the judge was very favorable to the prosecution's arguments about what should and shouldn't be allowed in the courtroom. Having followed this case closely for well over a year, I knew there was a huge piece of the narrative that just simply wasn't being told in court, a amount of things in context that were not permitted to be brought up. So the defense was really struggling to bring in things that could contextualize quotes, quotes that very much made it sound like an individual was talking about a willingness to participate in the crime that the government said they were, they were doing. But in fact, the context of that quote is he heard the full clip because they're talking about a totally different activity. And it was one of those soundbite situations where the bad part was brought into court but the exculpatory part was left out of court there was a lot of that and knowing that it's kind of something the jury ruled as it did since it didn't hear the context and most
0: of the information how did they lose the jury on this one when the judge did allow
4: what's called an entrapment instruction he allowed the jury to be instructed that they could consider entrapment as an issue. Um, The prosecution had hoped that wouldn't go in, but it did, so that meant that the jury was told before they deliberated, hey, you should consider whether these guys conspired as alleged to to kidnap a governor, but you should also consider whether at the same time they were entrapped by the FBI to do things they wouldn't ordinarily have done. So inclusion of that instruction was a big deal for the defense, but the other thing undermined the prosecution's chance of winning was that it was a credibility problem. Many of their witnesses contradicted each other. Or were fuzzy on facts. And the defense did a pretty good job in the, without being able to sort of show the context themselves or to explain the story to make, to show things in a more favorable light, they were still able to undermine the credibility of witnesses and make it look like they didn't have a straight story. And that can have the effect of making juries question whether what they're really hearing all the truth, even if they aren't seeing an alternative truth. And that certainly seems to be a big factor in what happened last week.
0: There definitely were threats. There were definitely. Neo-Nazi, white supremacists, various different groups in Michigan. That said, is there a problem with the way the government's going about this, that they're taking the easy, low-hanging fruit? That's a great
4: question. Like, Where do you figure out where the really dangerous people are? One way to look at this case is they were trying to proactively find people who are dangerous and get them off the playing field, you know, to use a sports metaphor. But another way is they were provoking people who actually would have been, never been able to do anything of harm anyway into saying and thinking things they wouldn't have otherwise thought. And meanwhile, the really incredible amount of resources directed to that could have been used to find people who truly represent a threat to society. For example, how much resources were used before January 6th, not after, which is obviously a different story, but how much resources were used before January 6th to, to try to prevent that kind of thing, as opposed to spending it on going after, as you described, the Yahoo's in Michigan. And could they have better directed resources to really identifying actual threats as opposed to stirring the pot among people who might have done nothing otherwise. Do you like that? Prosecutors in particular can draw a straight line between landing a big case and getting a job at a big fancy firm and making a lot of money. They have a real incentive to getting a case and making as much noise as possible and getting a lot of attention. Those kinds of incentives can be not necessarily in the best interest of justice.
0: And that is Ken Bensinger. He's the author of A Stunning Surprise in the Michigan Kidnapping Case Calls the Government Domestic Terror Strategy into Question. You can read it at Buzzfeed.new- BuzzFeedNews.com. Pardon me. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Citing reasons spanning the inclusion of critical race theory to common core learning concepts, the Florida Education Department has rejected 54 mathematics textbooks for its public school curriculum. According to the uh, Florida Department, the rejected books make up a record 41 percent of the 132 books submitted for review. 28 were rejected because they, quote, incorporate prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies. Critical race theory has been described by scholars as an examination of racism and its impact through systems such as legal, housing and education. However, it's typically not taught in elementary or high school. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis defended the book banning action at a news conference
4: we got rid of Common Core, as you know. We have best standards, which is uh, a better uh, way to do a lot of things, but particularly math. I mean, one of the criticisms was the parents couldn't help their kids with the math homework. So any of the books that don't meet the best standards are are not going to be appropriate for us to use. Uh, You do have things like social and emotional learning and some of the other things that are more political in there. In our view on something like math, first, it doesn't meet the standards. But second, you know, math is about getting the right answer. And we want kids to learn to think so they get the right answer. It's not about how you feel about the problem or to introduce some of these other things. It's there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And we want all our students getting the right answer.
0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, meanwhile in New York City. He's back. Former mayor Michael Bloomberg launched a 50 million dollar initiative today to expand summer programming among New York City charter schools today, an effort Bloomberg says was meant to close learning gaps widened by the pandemic. The initiative, called Summer Boost, will allow any of the city's charter schools to apply for grant funding to bolster their existing summer programs or launch new ones. The privately funded effort is slated to reach 25,000 students in grades K through 8, about 18 percent of those currently enrolled in city charter schools.
4: The mayor has a program for all kids in New York City, whether they go to public schools that are charters or public schools that are not charters. In the past, the non-charter kids were not covered, but the mayor has chosen to cover them as well. This is a grant for the most in need, let's say a third of the kids in charter schools who've been left behind, to give them some extra work in the charter schools. And the charter school people thought that they would like to take a stab at helping their kids, and that would be a role model for everybody, And so we're funding that. And so that's where the 50 million dollars is going, of which I think Bloomberg Philanthropies put in two thirds of it and then a third from the other people whose names I mentioned.
0: Former Mayor Bloomberg officials framed the new program as similar to Summer Rising, the city's existing summer school initiative that combines morning academic support with enrichment activities in the afternoon. Summer Rising program is already open to all students, including including those attending private or charter schools, but Bloomberg indicated some charter school leaders want to run their own programs. Adam's immediate predecessor, Bill de Blasio, was critical of charter schools. About 14% of the city's public school students are in the quad. the quasi-private schools that operate as part of the Department of Education. de Blasio also railed against Bloomberg's education agenda and worked to unravel it. Adams has been much warmer to Bloomberg and promised a friendlier approach to the publicly funded yet privately managed charter schools. Bloomberg Philanthropies will provide about two-thirds of the funding for the $50 million summer grant program, with the rest provided by a slew of private groups. The program is not expected to continue after this summer. Bloomberg, mayor for 12 years at the beginning of the century, was heavily criticized at the time for his use of stop-and-frisk policing, found unconstitutional by a federal judge, and in part leading to the election of much more liberal Bill de Blasio. Adams, apparently reinstating many Bloomberg policies in criminal justice and other areas, defended his reliance on the former mayor while adding that he still stays in touch with de Blasio
1: look at the issues we are facing now when I read his book and read other things what was going on during that time why are we attempting to ignore a person who has already gone through it and so when I sit down and bounce ideas off of him talk about the recovery of the city during 9-11 what was going through his mind what should we do differently it's a handicap not to have that when you see the level of calmness that I have, because I already spoke to Mike. And I know we're going to get through this. When I keep saying New Yorkers are resilient, that we're going to make it through this, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through the crises that we are facing because we got through it already. And we're going to get through it again. We are New York strong. And we had a mayor that showed us how we could be New York strong.
0: And that is the current mayor, Eric Adams. And finally... The five boroughs will fully restore alternate side parking this summer as part of an $11 million effort to improve street cleanliness. as according to the city's newly appointed sanitation commissioner. The city, which partially suspended alternate parking in March 2020, will reinstate its previous rules on July 5th. as according to sanitation commissioner Jessica Tisch. The policy, which allowed drivers to move their vehicles once a week instead of twice, was a pandemic measure to let people stay inside that went on for far too long, she said. It also largely sidelined the best clean streets tool in our arsenal, the mechanical broom, she added, referring to a type of sanitation truck known as a street sweeper. And she went on to say the dirty little secret here is that when when alternate side of the street parking went to one day a week instead of two, in practice, it was like having no cleaning on lots of blocks in the city. Don't get me wrong, she said. That's not for a lack of trying or care in the sanitation department. It's – because the policy created a world where too many people saw a a once-in-a-while ASP ticket as just the cost of doing business. She said the restoration is expected to more than double the amount of cleaning that we can and will do. The $11 million the city is shelling out to ramp up street sweeping will also affect cyclists. Sanitation crews will start cleaning Protected bike lanes approximately once a week this summer using narrow sweepers called micro mobility operation machines. They were a huge hit during the snow clearance, she said, and we're excited to announce the funding to modify them for sweeper duty. Mayor Eric Adams said in a statement that the investment will allow the city to come back stronger than ever. Adams said, We're no longer just going to talk about cleaning up our streets or taking steps to fight climate change, but we're actually going to put real money behind these initiatives and lead by example here in New York City. And that's some of the news for Monday, April 18, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.